Hi everyone, Julie Panessi here. It's now been three weeks since that week when perhaps more so than any other in Canadian history, we were all left wondering, you know, what it means to be Canadian, what our laws really are, what civil liberties are in Canada, and what force, if any, our constitution really has. Three weeks ago today, our Prime Minister invoked the Emergencies Act for the first time in Canadian history. And two days after that, without anything substantial having changed scientifically or in terms of the truck convoy in Ottawa, he revokes it. And for many, it wasn't clear that we didn't have other legal approaches or apparatus that could have better handled the protests in Ottawa, Windsor and in Alberta. And for many others still, it wasn't clear that we were in any kind of state of emergency that warranted the use of the extraordinary defense measures at all. And when this sort of thing happens, I think it makes sense as citizens to, to think and talk about where we're at and what's happening in our country and what that says about how we are evolving and where we might be headed. Last week, I had the pleasure and privilege of sitting down with legal scholar and executive director of Rights Pro, Bruce Party. And we chatted about so much. I learned so much from the conversation. We, cha we chatted about you know, how much freedom we really have in Canada right now and why autonomy and Canadian civil liberties have lost their footing. We talked about where in the world this collectivist approach to law came from and what the government and judicial response to the COVID situation has in common with affirmative action of all things. So as I said, I, I had learned so much from chatting with Bruce um, I, I, and I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope you'll enjoy it as well. Seems to me like we've been through the ringer uh, politically, psychologically, legally over the last two years, but especially over the last couple of weeks since the, we can call it the end of the convoy in, in Ottawa. As a legal scholar, where, what are you seeing? Where do you think we're at in Canada? So the, the first observation I would make is that the place we are seems sudden, as though it's come on in the past two years. And in some respects, it has. I mean, we sort of crossed a, a threshold, and things are, 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 are different in a way. But and it, it's it's a big but. We've been traveling this path legally for quite a while, and so I'm shocked, but not surprised, if I can put it that way. So by this path, you mean? what can you kind of flesh that out a little bit because i think most of us don't have much of an awareness of what the laws are in canada how they get worked out in the courts how um our foundational documents like the constitution are meant to apply what kind of force they have so can you just kind of um sort tease, tease that out a little bit for us sure so so perhaps the first thing is to perhaps to try to displace a a belief that some people carry around it with them, which is that regardless of what else is happening in society or in the culture, that the law is there, it's solid, it's in black and white, and immutable. it's a foundation, it's immutable, it will protect them. And that that's just not the way it really works. The 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 law is the product of the culture. And and the, as the culture moves, so does the law. And in fact, in our case, 
it might even be more extreme in the sense that the the legal culture has been changing for 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 decades really and in some ways it has led the cultural changes that we have been have have seen mm. uh, it, it has sort of laid the ground for a lot of these changes to be made so let me just give you one concrete example mm -hmm. uh, we have an equality provision in the charter of rights that provision appears to say that everybody is entitled to equal treatment under the law meaning that the same rules and standards apply to everybody and then there's a a, a subsection a section uh, a part two of that section that says oh and by the way it's okay if you have uh, affirmative action now they don't call it affirmative action but that's essentially what they mean so at the time that this was put in place this is the early 1980s we had affirmative action programs or at least they were on the horizon wherein you gave special treatment to certain groups and so those two subsections were designed in my opinion and drafted to work together the first one was essentially a statement that the same rules apply to everybody and the second one was well except if you have one of these programs and what has happened since that time is that the supreme court of canada has taken the first part of that section and said oh no 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 that doesn't mean the same rules apply to everybody that requires equality in a different sense in a substantive sense that is it's not equal treatment it's equal outcome and if that means that we must apply different rules to different people different groups well then that's what this section requires so most so recently interpretation yes. at the level of the supreme court judges i'm sorry say that again this is an interpretation that's happening by the supreme court judges that's correct and of course this this is this is the dynamic that happens with with laws in general right so you have words on the page in statutes or in constitutions and then those words have to be interpreted by by courts and then one of the one of the live issues always in the in 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 the court is you know to what extent is the court free to place its own creative interpretation on those words or are they committed to a narrow interpretation boxed in by the actual words and boxed in by what courts previously have held those words to mean and we can get into that that, that leads us into the the living tree and the degree of, of control that courts are supposed to have over social policy and so on but but in in this particular situation what the court has done over a period of of decades is basically say that the guarantee to equality in the charter is a guarantee to substantive equality between groups and so those people who are carrying around the idea that in canada we have a constitutional guarantee of equal treatment under the law meaning you can't make the job not open to white males that's not true it's just not the, not the case uh and, and so that might not appear to have direct relevance to the COVID situation but actually it does because it lays down a sort of a if you like a an ideological take on uh the way the, the charter is supposed to work and and a reflection of the prevailing ideological approach that's been taken to the law in general over that period of time 
Well, can you tell us how is, okay, let's be very basic because in most conversations I see words like constitution or words or terms like constitution, charter of rights and freedom, bill of rights, emergencies act are um, used, but not explained, rarely explained. So in your view, how is the constitution supposed to work? I mean, what kind of force does that have? Good question. And what's in it? Right. <laughs> so, well, let, 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 let's let's try. I mean, it's always hard to find out what the what the you know the very starting point is. But let's try. Let's try. So, okay. <laughs> little right, thought so, experiment. Right. Exactly. So, mm. so our system is basically built on the on the uh, British system, mm. and the British system has a, a, you know lots of principles in it. But one of those principles is legislative supremacy. That is, the legislature is supreme. And the UK doesn't have a written constitution. They have an unwritten constitution. But for the most part, they have a principle that legislatures can make any rules they like. And why is that? Well, because they have democratic legitimacy. They've been elected by the people. Mm. And, and they're, you know, they don't have a charter of rights. So they don't have courts coming in and saying, well, you can't do this and you can't do that. They have the principle of legislative supremacy. And because we are built on that model, we have that principle too. So we have now, but we, we have one thing that the Brits don't have, which is a division between provinces and federal government. But as long as a government is within an area of their jurisdiction, they can make any laws they want. And that means that those laws do not have to be justified by evidence by science, by social policy, by reasonableness. They don't have to be fair. They can be anything they want, anything they want. So for example, mm -hmm. if the government passed a law that said, we're taking your house and we're not paying your compensation, then that's the law. And all of the objections that say, well, but I have rights. Well, not that protects you from that, you don't. No, so find one, show me one. Show me a right that means that the legislature can't pass a law that says they're taking your house. And you'd be hard pressed to find one. It's not in the charter because the charter does not protect property rights. We have the Bill of Rights and the Bill of Rights is not a constitutional document. It's an ordinary statute, uh, an ordinary federal statute passed in 1960. So what does and, that mean? What, what, what work in law does a statute do? A statute is the declaration from the legislature of what the law shall be, but it's different from a constitution because the constitution is a limitation on that principle that I mentioned, legislative supremacy. So legislative supremacy still exists, mm -hmm. but but it like has a, has a fence around it now. That's the, that's the fence of the constitution, including the charter. So you can go, you can make laws as you wish if you're a legislature, except if it breaches one of the provisions of the constitution, including the charter, right? That word <clears throat> breaches is very interesting, I, I would think. I beg your pardon? The word breaches is very interesting. I, well, absolutely. What does it mean for a law to breach the constitution e or something? Exactly so, exactly so. So so let's go back to section 15 and the equality thing, because that that's the question in every charter challenge, right? So legislative supremacy, you can pass laws, you can do regulations if the statutes authorize them. So let me, let me back up again. One of the other principles, a key principle that we have in our system 
is that we have three branches of government. Yes, we have legislatures, we have the executive branch, and we have the courts. Mm -hmm. And as a general principle, we're supposed to have separation of powers, or if you like, functions between those three branches. Mm -hmm. But the executive is the largest branch of government. Uh, it includes everything that's not legislature or courts. So if you think of the cabinet, um, but not just the cabinet, but also all of the ministries, all the departments, all the agencies, all the tribunals, all of the, 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 the bureaucratic end of government are all executive branch. Now, the general principle is the executive branch of government can't do anything that is not authorized by a statute. Hmm. And that's sort of the relationship. It's an uneasy relationship, though, because the people who head the executive branch are also the people who head the legislative branch. You know, the, the premier in the cabinet or the prime minister in the cabinet, they're directing the legislative program at the same time they're running the government. Mm -hmm. In that sense, we have a weak separation, unlike the Americans, who have a completely separate office of the president and Congress. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, the principle still applies, except that because... There's, a, there's, there's sort of a collusion here between executive branch and legislature because both branches are quite happy for the executive branch to have wide discretion to make policies and to make regulations and to, to, to fix problems on the go mm -hmm. so that a lot of the statutes give to the executive branch this very wide discretion and, and, and lawmaking, rulemaking authority, mm -hmm. which is what has happened in this COVID area, but didn't start with COVID. So you have, for example, the Reopening Ontario Act. Reopening Ontario Act says cabinet can make regulations about this and that. And the regulations say that the chief medical officers of the health direct directives will be effectively the law. So they have given the chief medical officer of health essentially lawmaking authority. And, and it's it's all written down there, so it is it is consistent with these ideas that that we have the legislative uh, supremacy and and the power to delegate authority. The executive branch is now using the authority it's been given. So, mm -hmm. on its face, even though it sounds it sounds arbitrary, it sounds draconian, it sounds like you've concentrated power in an office, and you have, and yet, it's still lawful it's very it's consistent with the way the system is built so the emergencies act comes along right which seems to look like um it obliterates the constitution right you is that it, the case? no it's actually not the case so there's a i, I agree with the way it looks mm -hmm. but so the emergencies act is just another statute and because it's another statute, it was, it was passed in uh, 1988. This is a federal statute. And no legislature can oust the Constitution even if it wanted to. So they passed the Emergencies Act. This is really a, it's a political signal. By calling it the Emergencies Act and saying, all right, we're going to create these unusual powers that we're going to invoke only in these situations. What they basically done is say, all right, all you people, we're only going to do this kind of thing when there's a dire situation. They didn't have to do it that way. They, they could have just passed the statute that created these powers. Because the, the nature or even the definition of an emergency involves the idea that it's anomalous. 
Yes, but we're sure. not in a permanent state of emergency. Otherwise, it would cease to be an emergency, presumably, right? Per correct, correct. It was both temporary and extreme, sort of ex existential, right? like war or invasion or some kind of natural disaster, something you need to deal with right now that, that, uh, that is a, is a acute threat to the country and its people. Was that the case, do you think? Oh, God, no. <laughs> no, no, not even close. Not, not even close. So use the you, word like existential threat that conjures right. images of, as you say, kind of warfare or something that without intervention would end the lives of many, many people or something, something right. equivalent to that. Right. So, so let me just go back just for a moment before I answer that question. Let me go back for a moment to the charter question, which you raised, and it's a very good one. So how is it that they can do this, even though the charter is still in effect, they haven't ousted the charter, the constitution still exists. Mm -hmm. How can they do this? Well, it's probably because um, we have in our charter, we have section one, which is the reasonable limits uh, provision, which basically says that even in situations where charter rights have been infringed, that might be okay if the government can show it was justified. And the way you justify it is you show the pressing problem you're trying to fix and you show the reasonableness of the infringement that you've caused, the proportionality between the cause and the effect, and the fact that there were no other practical options about how to fix the problem and, and, and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so by invoking the Emergencies Act, you're giving a signal to the people and to the courts for that matter, that the government thinks this is a, thinks this is a dire situation and therefore might justify infringing rights. And of course, that the, the validity of that view is for the courts to make it ever, if it ever gets there. But in the present circumstance, what has happened, and there have been, there have been applications to challenge the invocation of the act now in process, but mm -hmm. you know, this, this was declared and then, and then rescinded uh, eight, eight days or so later. So you have that period and the Emergencies Act is set up so that the government has seven working days, seven working days, not just seven calendar days, but seven working days to use their powers before the invocation has to be ratified by parliament. And so the whole thing was wrapped up before that, before the Senate vote occurred. Uh, so to your, uh, to your question, now I forget what it was. Uh, I after all that. But I was Wait going to ask you, uh, yeah. so following along that line of thought, uh, the Prime Minister announces that he's uh, invoking the Emergencies Act, and then I couldn't remember exactly what you're saying. It was about eight days later when he revoked it, and I forget the language exactly, but it was something like, upon careful consideration, and we've weighed all the evidence, blah, 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 it's no longer necessary. And there's been a lot of speculation about why he made that judgment when it didn't seem as though anything scientific or really anything to do with the nature of the protest changed in that period of time. Sure. Uh, and right. then, of course, one of the hypotheses is that, well, the debate in the Senate was looking like it wasn't going to support the prime minister's uh, invocation. What is your take on that? Well, I've heard I've heard two theories about why it was rescinded. And the first one was the one that you mentioned, is that the debate was not going well in the Senate. And there were a couple of really good speeches by conservative senators that put a lot of questions up uh, that, that couldn't be answered. And the other uh, rumor that I heard, I don't know if it's true, is that the banks were starting to get alarmed with the number of people who were taking their money out 
Mm -hmm. uh, because it seemed like not secure anymore, that the, the confidence they had in the banking system was being eroded. Mm -hmm. And and so the bank said, you know, cut cut it out. I don't know if that's true, but that that those are two of the explanations that I've read. Um, but let's go back to the invocation for a moment, which I think was, was your question before. Mm -hmm. There are certain, in, in the statute, this 1988 statute, which by the way, this version of the emergency acts has never been invoked before. This is the, this the, is the successor to the War Measures Act, right, which was invoked in 1970 by Pierre Trudeau. Mm -hmm. So this was passed in 1988 and the requirements, the, the, the prerequisites for invoking the Emergency Act is actually stated in the Act. You know, the, the, there, there are four different kinds of emergencies in the Act. There's a public welfare emergency, a public order emergency, an international emergency, and a war emergency. And so the government, if it wants to invoke the Act, has to pick one of those four things. And this was a public they, order. What? Exactly so. It was a public order emergency. So all the rules and stuff about about the other three became irrelevant. But right. there are certain requirements and prerequisites and definitions for something to amount to a public order emergency. There has to be a threat to the, to the security of Canada. Mm -hmm. And there has to be a national emergency. And those things are defined in the act. The, the national emergency, for example, uh, consists of one of two things. And, and, and the two things are, it's, it's basically an existential threat, as I said, they don't use that word, but an existential threat to the territorial integrity of the country as though you're being invaded. Mm -hmm. Or, which is the one that was uh, the, the one that applied was uh, serious violence. You've got a you've got a you've got a matter of serious violence that threatens the lives, health, or safety of Canadians, and that's the one they picked. There were a couple of other requirements as well. Number one, that the the nature of the problem was one beyond the capacity of a province to deal with, mm -hmm. and and one that could not be dealt with under existing laws that were in force in Canada. So you have all these requirements flying around. And the one that they're focusing on, and the one that I think, I mean, I don't think, frankly, it, may, it, it meets any of those requirements. Mm -hmm. but, but, the, but I think the one that's most acutely, obviously not met, is the one that emphasizes or requires the existence of serious violence. So in the proclamation, that invoked the Emergencies Act. That's the first characteristic of the emergency that the government was claiming to being tried to remedy. Serious threats or acts of serious violence. Mm -hmm. The so question what is- So would count as an, uh, as an act of serious violence from civilians? Well, see, this, this is the thing. So um, the public, uh, we don't have precedent state, for this, right? We don't. We can't. We can't. There's point no precedent. Back to other, mm -hmm. right? So, but my my theory goes like this. So there was no violence from the from the convoy. There's no violence from the protesters. I mean, they were there for three weeks. They were, you know, parked in the street, and the protesters, you know, came and went. So there was and you were crowded. there, right? I was there for a while. I was you there for. Uh, I mean, the, I came to have a look, a look around and see what was going on and, and, and uh, to sort of give commentary where I could. Uh, the truckers had been there for uh, maybe a week or a bit more when, by the time I arrived, but I saw what was going on on the ground. 
I saw the protesters on the weekends. My goodness, they were happy. They were so happy. They were so there happy with happy and hugging and playing were, hockey was, in the streets and cleaning the sidewalks. And yeah. that's what I saw anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, I saw that too. And and it was it was a celebration, I think. I I my theory is that they were just happy to have found each other and to have discovered that they weren't the only ones in the country who were thinking the way they were. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but but they were, you know, they were singing and dancing and there was cheering and and it was it was it was it was like being a candidate, basically, but a more genuine version of that. Yeah, absolutely. But but no violence. No, but violence. no violence. Right. So and so the question there... is, and, and, and at one point, at one point, a, a reporter asked the, the, the public safety minister, well, okay, you've invoked the emergency act. Where's the violence? I mean, what 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 are you talking about? What reporter was that? <laughs> uh, I don't remember. I don't remember. It was a scrum. Uh, um but this well, was good for that reporter. That's all. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to give that reporter credit. Uh, yeah. Basically, the, I mean, I, the specific the specific question, if I remember it correctly, was, do you have intelligence that there are weapons, you know, in the in the crowd? I mean, mm-hmm. what are you basing this on? And and the minister's response was, well, it's not it's not that we have intelligence about weapons. It's Instead, it's really the rhetoric that we are hearing. It's the expression. It's the expression of a political ideology. That is not serious violence itself, is it? That it well, see, so, so no, of course not. Of course not. So, what the minister basically said is, we are declaring an emergency because of the expression is coming out of people's mouths about their political opinions. So charitably, what is the thinking there that we're declaring an emergency because we are seeing people saying the kinds of things that have historically led to extreme violence? Not even that. 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 So the real, the real threat here, and this is my take, but the real threat here was to their own political fortunes and ideology. It's not that there wasn't a threat, but not a sort of violence. It was a political threat. This was, had the potential to be um, the coming together of a, a real political opposition in this country that hasn't had a real political opposition forever. So this was a coming together of people who thought, you know what? We don't. We really fundamentally don't agree with what's happening here, and we will not go along with it. Um, so let, let's take another take on this. I, I, you know, in this in this era, in the in the era of the prevailing ideology that we have right now, a lot of words are being redefined. Hmm. Like, racism is one example that I get, and the meaning of racism is, is is now what it it. Racism doesn't mean what it used to mean um, in a previous era. Racism, racism doesn't mean um, taking account of people's race. So you, in an earlier era, you would have said somebody is racist if they care what race you are, what color you are. If you treat everybody the same, then mm-hmm. you're not a racist. Mm-hmm. That's so the definition. That, and now, of course, that word's been turned on its head. Right. If you do not take race into account and compensate accordingly, then you are the racist. 
So it's been flipped on its head. And, and there are lots of other terms that have been flipped. So the, the, the word freedom, you could say, has been flipped. Flipped um, in the sense that for adherence of, of the prevailing ideology, freedom now kind of means both safety and to be provided with the resources to do what you want. In other words, that version of freedom requires government intervention as opposed to the original meeting, which was the government leaves you alone. This is a very now, interesting- Hold sorry, on, you no, hold on, here, hold on. Here's, here's, here's the point. One of those terms is violence that's been flipped upside down. To these people, words can be violence. And so my theory is they've taken that literally they think that the expression of a contrary ideological view from the protesters amounts to violence. It's certainly a threat to their worldview, but they, the public minister, public safety minister said, the cause of this emergency is rhetoric. And, and rapists, we just heard. And rapists, this, right, that, that's come out more recently, but which is, which is telling this, this, I, this, this uh, idea, which seems to have come out of nowhere. Well, I also there. take it that there's some kind of synonymy there. So if they are racist, therefore they are also rapists. Well, sure. Or, I'm not sure. It's very hard to understand because there has been no evidence forthcoming to support that claim as far as I know. All right. So, so here, here's, here's where we get into the theory of all of this, right? Because the, this is all consistent with the, the, the ground that's been laid that I talked spoke about at the beginning. This, this is all sort of consistent with critical theory, mm -hmm. right? So you, your observation, I think is entirely correct. Now we get there's to no it. There's no evidence, <laughs> it makes no sense. But in critical theory, that doesn't matter because critical theory is an anti-Western agenda, anti-Western anti ideology, if you like. Anti-analytic, anti-reason. Anti-analytic anti-evidence, anti-consistency, all those things are Western enlightenment things, mm -hmm. right? So if you, go to a, if you go to a critical theorist and say, well, you're not being consistent, they'll call you a racist or the like, because you're being Western about it. That's the virtue of a privileged white man to be consistent. Sure, exactly mm -hmm. so, right? Mm -hmm. So when we say, you know, well, your, your, your accusations make no sense that, you know, the, 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 there's, you know, there are rapists in the crowd because they're racist or because they're misogynists because of the rhetoric. I mean, anybody can see that doesn't make any sense. And it's, it, it has no, there's no evidence behind it. And it sounds like they're just making stuff up. But that doesn't matter to them. Right. Uh, no, I, I, this is so fascinating. Thank you for that or articulating it in that way. I also want to ask you about safety and security because that came up in your uh, interpretation of what should be protected now in Canada, which is supposed to be a democracy. Um, and it seems to me that in the, in the language, both uh, you know, within, well, within our government, within our courts, but also more colloquially among people who disagree about the COVID response is that you see freedom on one side and security and safety on the other side. And that those are first principles 
So if you disagree about which of those things is most important, your, your discussion can't proceed because someone says, well, but your you know, desire to have safety is a threat to my freedom. And the other person says, yeah, I don't care. And then, you know, so there's really no way of, of progressing that, that discussion. One question I've had is it seems pretty easy to understand why someone might think that freedom and individual rights and autonomy are democratic ideals. I mean, if you look at the constitution, you can't get very far before you start seeing uh, concepts like freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, and those look like they're supporting autonomous free choice. What can we say charitably to those on the other side who want to maintain safety as a democratic ideal? Is it a democratic ideal? Have safety and security been, are they foundational to Canada's history? Are they relatively new developments in terms of what we value politically and legally? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, great question. And there's a lot in it. Mm. The, the concept of democracy is a tricky one, <laughs> right? Because on the one hand, it is ruled by the people. It's, it's not arbitrary, it's, it's uh, supposed to be responsible and responsive to what the population wants. Whatever it's, that is. Whatever that is, and it's supposed <laughs> to protect us from, from arbitrary power, it's supposed to protect us from people seizing power beyond their mandate and all those nice things. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it also has a connotation of rule by the majority. So if the majority thinks of they, they believe in a certain thing and they allow the government to impose that certain thing, then the people who don't agree are forced to, 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 to do it, which is, which is not the, which, which, which essentially is why one of the rationales for having rights. So the idea of a right, a constitutional right that you hold against the government is to hold back those democratic forces or worse, but democratic forces of the, of, of the group that says we want to do it in a certain way, they're supposed to enable you to say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do it that way. I'm not, I don't, I don't have to, because I have a right that's enforceable against the state. And it doesn't matter that you've elected a government that agrees with you and is, is passing a law that says do this. I'm not doing that because I have a, charter right, for example, to the freedom of association. Or Just to give you a little sphere of protection of, for privacy, a little sphere, right? Supposed to, supposed to carve out a sphere of, of individuality, a place where no one else can go and tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. um, but we're in, we're in a state now where even, well, see, it's not, it's not entirely clear that what has happened is sort of anti-democratic because our democratic rules have been followed, at least formally. I mean, we, we have elections still. There's no real evidence that the elections haven't been conducted properly. Hmm. Uh, that we have a minority parliament uh, and government in parliament. Um, the, the members of the legislature could have, if they wanted to, have defeated the implication of the Emergencies Act. It's that they chose not to. So it's not like we have a dictator. All we the democratic a, rules are, be, are being followed. We don't have a it's, procedural problem with democracy. We don't have a procedural problem. Correct. Mm -hmm. um, and, and see, part of the part of the difficulty with Canada has been for a long time, but especially during this COVID period, 
is that it has tends to be rather monolithic in the sense that there's, there's a prevailing view. You mean ideologically? And, and ideologically, and, 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 and it at least appears to be the case. And I could be wrong about this, and who, who really knows? But, but it seems like the vast majority of people are one with that basic progressive ideology. So one of, one of, one of the distinctions th between the U.S. and Canada during COVID has been that at least in the U.S., there's been a battle going on between what the proper approach is. You know, they had red states and blue states and mm -hmm. people who think this and people who think that. And there's been a real public battle about the ideology behind COVID. Mm. Until the truckers, that was not the case in Canada. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you have provincial governments of all political stripes, hardline, all of them on COVID. You don't have a DeSantis in Florida. You don't have a, you don't have that, you know, the, the, the Midwest states saying, no, we're not doing it that way. You have, you have everybody across the board, conservatives, liberals, NDP saying, uh, oh, mask up, vaccine mandates, you know, lockdown, yeah. too bad. And, and the, and the, and the one thing that happened triggered by the truckers was the appearance at least of hmm. at least some kind of mass of people who said, uh-uh, no, 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 no. We don't agree. We do, we do not consent to being governed this way. Something that their political leaders would not do, refuse to do of all political stripes, with the exception of, of the smaller parties with no seats in parliament. Yeah, and even people right. who we might have expected a few years prior to to vehemently oppose. I mean, people like Jason Kenney and Scott Moe, and even even Ford, I think, in another yeah. time, another era, uh, have have just homogenized. Exactly so. Exactly so. And so, mm -hmm. and so, this is one thing that we'll have to find out as time goes on whether or not this is actually a coming together of enough of a critical mass of people to actually be. A political opposition, not in the formal political, you know, party sense, but in in the in the population, mm -hmm. so that we do have a battle going on. That's what we need. We need a we need a a a, a disagreement. Canada <laughs> needs a disagreement about this. Yeah, it, it's and, very and, interesting, right? That ironically, almost you would think that in a democracy, there's some value uh, to putting forth effort to come to agreement about key issues. Right. And yet, when we, I mean, in this case, this COVID situation has shown us that too much agreement, too much homogeneity in our thinking has perhaps gotten us the wrong answer, or, or maybe just that we've lost something politically and that we've lost respect for other citizens who do have different viewpoints and we've lost the ability to engage with each other uh, in respectful discourse. I mean, you look what goes on in the House and now that we're seeing MPs and also members of the Senate uh, speaking out against some of these COVID mandates and the, the, the unreasonableness of the Emergencies Act, yep. uh, the, the Liberal MPs and, um, and some of the NDP MPs, they don't address the issues or the questions. They just sort of regurgitate sure. the same line and then walk away. Right, We've but lost, right? Yes, all, 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 all true. But, in, but in, in those days, I mean, there were even a handful of liberal MPs that, that said, you know, this is, I'm yes. not sure this is a good idea, yeah. right? Yeah. And, but all of those things only happened 
after the truckers arrived. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to be that there was, in fact, a, a group of people. A groundswell. A groundswell of, 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 of agreement with the position that, that the truckers were expressing against the vaccine mandates and other, other COVID rules. It sort of gave cover to those political actors who, who knows, might have thought this all the way along or, or might have been opportunist about it. I don't know probably different from person to person, but that wasn't happening before, for the most part. There were exceptions, but not very many. And whether or not this will will stick and grow now, or whether it will whether it will, it will slowly fade in in, you know, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I will tell. What do you think makes for a good democratic citizen? <laughs> the ideal you know you look at our foundational documents our constitution our charter you look at the well democracy doesn't really work unless you have citizens who think for themselves i thought you were just going to put a period after work there democracy some would say that some 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 have made a very good case that it doesn't work period like you say a necessary it, evil is, is the way it's often put right well the, the, the i think it's the best line is it churchill who said democracy is the worst it's the worst system of all, except for all the others. Yeah, Plato said something like that. It's like right, the seventh right. worst form of government or something. But... Right, right. Okay. Yeah. Right. But, but you, need, perfect, so you, need, right? You, need, you need people who are willing to think for themselves and take responsibility for themselves. And that doesn't sound very woke and critical theorist of you. <laughs> no. no, it's not. That, that's, that's, that's the problem. I do, but is that is that what's central to the idea of a democratic citizen, though? That a kind of idea of like atomistic, autonomous, critical thought. So what what we've been seeing now, this kind of turning our thinking over to the experts, to the public health officials, and just saying, mm. "Not my job. You figure it out for me. Let me know, and then I'll follow yes. along." Yes, yes, absolutely. Problematic for democracy, you think. But that's part and parcel of the ideology, right? The, the it's top the, down, right? It's top down. It's the authority of experts. It's the authority of expertise. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, the idea that you wouldn't follow along and do what you're told during COVID is 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 a challenge to the legitimacy of the whole regime. And maybe worse than that, it's heretical. I think. Absolutely. It's right. absolutely heretical. It's a good You're word challenging for challenging yeah. the, the religion that, that COVID has become. Sure. With all of sure. its sacraments and all of its virtue signaling and all of the virtues that come along with being a good COVID citizen. Right. And that's and that's where all the complaints about misinformation come from, too. Yes. If oh, you say more about that. That's interesting. Right. right. Well, so if you if you if you state information or an opinion mm -hmm. that is contrary to that religious belief mm -hmm. then that constitutes heresy i mean so quite so literally so right so interesting let okay let's talk about that for a minute because okay. this recent case i don't know if you've seen it the ontario superior court case uh with justice pazarats and the case is yeah. really about right so he rules yeah. in favor of the mother who doesn't want to vaccinate her children but more generally and perhaps more importantly than that he's speaking to the use of these terms in the court system right misinformation and i forget how how he put it exactly but he said you know can we even put the words unacceptable 
views or unacceptable beliefs together? Is that even legitimate? And what happened to critical thinking? What would happen to, to question asking? So um, it's very interesting to me that we're starting to see that in the courts and becoming part of public record in that way, right? Well, it's a, it's a, terrific, it's a terrific judgment to read. I mean, I'm, and I hope it does, but it is an outlier. Uh, during the COVID, this COVID period, most courts have been very uh, quick to embrace the government narrative on all of this. And most of the challenges to COVID rules have been spectacularly unsuccessful. Um, so one can hope, one can hope, but, but the, the, the record so far is not encouraging on, in that respect. Okay, Bruce. And, you yeah, help me understand this for a minute, because what I what I'm seeing happening, you know, in a lot of the judgments that are not like Pazaratz's judgment that are more on the other side is they'll say, well, the evidence you're providing, the argument you're making is really just misinformation. How do I know? Well, because it's inconsistent with what Health Canada is telling us. So, so the way that's working then is that the representative of the court, a judge, part of the judicial system, is taking its cue from Health Canada, which is part of the executive, correct? Yes, correct. Yeah. Is that how it's supposed to work? <laughs> no, it's not, it's not how it's supposed to work, not at all. It, 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 well, I just well, want to make sure we're clear so that I'm understanding, right? right? Because there's sure. a conflation there that's happening, right? And then I'm guessing, I mean, now the government is going to say, well, we've had all of these cases ruling against the people who are accused of being misinformers. And so that just gives further credence to the policy that the government is making. Right. So, so the pattern over a period of time, especially from the Supreme Court, has been uh, a, a, a defense, number one, a defense of the necessity for an expansive administrative welfare state. Now, that that administrative welfare state is not provided for in our constitution. No, nowhere says we're going to have you know we're we're going to have one of these things, and it's going to take control of stuff. That that's not provided for in the constitution. But nevertheless, the Supreme Court over a long period of time has basically you know, basically endorsed the idea that we have to have one of these things, and it has to be able to function in order to solve all our social problems. So that's an ideological view. It is not the case. That the government that the that the courts always take the government's point of view not at all there are lots of cases in the books where the gut where the courts have said oh no government you didn't do right here you have to do it better so mm. let me give you an example this goes back to our discussion about equality so the rcmp a long time ago instituted a job sharing program for its members voluntary program so if you were full-time they only had full-time at, at the time if you were full-time and you didn't want to be full-time, you wanted to be part-time, you could enter this job sharing program wherein other people who also wanted to be part-time could combine and make up a full-time position. Maybe mm. it's half-time, maybe it's third-time, or as the case may be. Uh, open to everybody. And uh, the RCMP had a pension um, program. And so what they did with the pension is say, all right, well, if you opt into the program, your pension will be proportional to the amount that you that you work as a part-timer if you uh, have a pull if you work full-time you get a full salary if you work part-time let's say you work half-time then you get half the salary mm -hmm. and that program was in place for a while but it was challenged 
on the basis that it violated the equality provision in the charter. Mm. And the argument was this. More women than men sign up, signed up for the program. And therefore, more women than men are getting a lower pension at the end of the day than men. Mm. And therefore, although the program is available to everybody equally voluntarily, it provides for unequal outcomes. Mm -hmm. And the court said, yep, this is, a, this is a program that breaches the equality guarantee in the charter, RCMP and government, you will change it so that it does not apply equally to everybody, so that everybody is not equally treated by it, so that you compensate for the fact that more women than men want to take it up. And that's an example of a situation where the court comes out against the government and says, you know, you have to fix things, but they do so in favor of what I would characterize as a progressive cause. Mm. Is right? there more of a history of the courts following uh, the government in when it comes to medical issues? Would you say? Well, again, not necessarily. So there, there's there are Supreme Court um, there, there was a Supreme Court of Canada case out of Quebec uh, a few years back that challenged the uh, the system of medical care, and the complaint was, look, we have a single payer system. We're not allowed to go outside the system to pay for our own medical care for the things that the system covers, mm -hmm. but the but the system isn't able to treat me for those things that it claims to cover so you gotta you can't have it both ways either the system has to respond to my needs or you have to allow me to go get my own and in that situation the the court basically agreed and said yeah you, you can't deny people care by claiming to be the only provider and then not provide it mm -hmm. uh so and, and there are lots of other examples of the courts you know not not agreeing with the government's specific case in as, as heard in the courtroom mm -hmm. but in general the the court has jealously guarded the ability of the administrative state in general to 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 carry on its functions in an expansive way to regulate to direct to subsidize to tax mm -hmm. and uh though in those moments where there's a contest between um well you know, less interference and a smaller government and more freedom versus the 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 expansive administrative state and more progressive causes and so on. It's not true in every single case by any means, but the 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 pattern has been in the one direction and not in the other. But but recently, an increasing trend towards. Well, it's, it goes back a long way. So the this interpretation that I've described of the equality provision, the charter was was enacted in 1982, and this and this started from the very first case that that considered the meaning of that provision. So this is not a sudden thing. This has been developing for a long, long time, much longer than most people realize. There's, I just feel like there's so much. Um, this, this is just a tip of a very, I'm going to mix a number of metaphors here, but a tip of a very complicated, thorny iceberg or something, you know. And Absolutely. Absolutely. More yeah. conversations about it. But uh, I don't want to hold you up too long. But let, let me ask you so, you know, we're talking about kind of all the problems with the court and the, you know, the blurring of these lines between the court and the executive branch. 
what do you take to be some of the most promising legal strategies right now among those who are trying to challenge the mandates, the COVID policies more generally? I mean, we're seeing cases against, um, you know, some of the churches that are trying to, they're trying not to follow some of the, the gathering um, guidelines. And we're seeing cases by students against universities for de-enrolling them. And we're seeing, uh, of course, a number of the truckers have tickets that they're fighting and people like Tamara Leach are, are fighting their own criminal charges. I mean, what are the most, I mean, are, are we looking at charter challenges being the only things that are most likely to be successful now? Um, what's likely to fail? Where should the energies be put? What do you think? Uh, that's a great question, and it's a question that the lawyers have been struggling with over this COVID period. Well, you know, what what's the best approach here? What's the best crack? I mean, what's the best way to be strategic? G given given the given the record so far of attempts and failures, you know, and the occasional success, but mostly failure. Mm -hmm. What what's the best approach to take? And I mean, in my view. It is, it is not the approach that says, let's, let's, just, let's just bring it all. Bring it all and sue everybody and, and cite all the charter provisions and just throw it in the kitchen sink because it's, it's not precise. It's, it's not targeted. It, it, it's an easy thing to reject because it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't mean don't be aggressive, but I mean it's important to be thoughtful about it and deliberate and to take those cases that have the best chance and not the ones that are likely to fail and produce precedents that will now actually get in the way the next time you try and do this. Mm -hmm. They do not have to all be charter challenges. And the charter challenges, again, have not, not gone well so far. And what are the other options? The other options are to, to so here are, here are, just for example, here are, here are two. In, in quite different areas of the law. One is to wait for a case where you can challenge the authority of an agency to act the way it is. Mm -hmm. So for example, we have uh, professional regulators, especially in the medical field, but not just, who are essentially telling their licensees, you know, don't do this, don't do that. You can't say that, you know, you can't provide, you know, supply misinformation, even though that misinformation is really medical opinion, which, yeah. which the you college. Mean, um, Christine Elliott's instructions to the CPSO as of late. about Exactly how to so. Dissenting, right? Correct. 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 So the question there is in a legal sense, has the, has the, the regulator at any point overreached and gone beyond the mandate provided in their statute because the, you know a regulator can't do anything it wants mm. its mandate is 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 defined in the statute that creates it and gives it marching orders mm -hmm. just like the emergencies act you can't just willy-nilly invoke the emergencies act if you don't meet the criteria same with the regulator you just can't do anything you want mm. so you, you you bring you 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 identify the most egregious kind of overreach and then you bring an application for judicial review, because one of the court's functions is to oversee what the executive does and make sure that it's within the boundaries of the powers that it's been given. So mm -hmm. if, you, if you can find a situation in which the regulator has done more than it's allowed to do, then you can establish a precedent that says, no, sorry, this is outside your area. You know, stay within, stay within your wheelhouse and your mandate. 
and telling people what to say is not one of those things that you can do. So that's one kind of case that, that I think should be pursued. Another completely different kind of case is in the area of, of uh, informed consent. So for example, if you had if you had somebody who went to get a vaccine and you know and, and signed the form that they put in front of you to give your consent and then got the vaccine and then perhaps experienced adverse effects from the vaccine and then you go back and say all right well so what was the interaction like between the patient and the medical provider of the vaccine maybe it was a nurse maybe a doctor maybe you know some other person healthcare provider at the clinic or in the doctor's office whoever it was one of the requirements of that person is to obtain informed consent. Now, and to obtain informed consent doesn't just mean shoving a piece of paper in front of you. It means explaining to you what the benefits and risks of the treatment are. And if you can find somebody who's been injured by the vaccine, who did not get any kind of guidance at all on what was going on and what the, what the risks and benefits were, then you might be able to say, look, you gave a vaccine without getting informed consent. That's medical negligence. And we're going to sue you now for the costs, compensation for the, for the injuries that have occurred. And of course, the challenges in those cases to, is to establish the causal connection between the vaccine. Oh, yeah. No, that's, that's just one of the hurdles. There's and going so to be so many institutional oh, yeah. challenges sure. to that right now. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you, Bruce. Thank you for that so much. That's so deep and intricately woven. And I think it'll take, how long is it going to take for us to unravel and resolve this? I mean, we, we're not talking about weeks here. Oh, God, no. We're in well, an identity crisis of some kind. Yes, as yes, 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 we are. So as... this is one of the, this is one of the things that's happened in the past little while. We've sort of seen the real face of, of this country and it's not, a, it's not a nice one. It's not a nice one. It's not clearly a democratic one. And if it isn't, then it, 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 it sort of raises the question for us, well, what is it? And what is a democracy anyway? We have a lot of working out to do in this country. And, and who knows how long it'll take and whether or not it'll get better soon or whether it'll get worse first. I, I, I don't know. Only time will tell. Well, I asked you earlier what makes a good democratic citizen. And I think at the very least, a necessary condition is that you're willing to talk about important things that matter to your country and to your citizens. And you've done that. You're so gracious to give us your time to do that today. So thank you so much. Oh, Julie, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for hanging out with me today. If you enjoyed watching this video, please consider making a tax deductible donation to the democracyfund.ca slash donate.